Well, happy anniversary, Covenant Hope. I know, what do you say to that? Yes, happy anniversary. It's been a wonderful four years. The Lord has been really gracious and kind to us over these four years. He's been so faithful. And I hope that you're able to perhaps come and join us at the picnic this afternoon and in the course of the afternoon, get a chance to not only catch up with one another and what's going on in your lives, but perhaps recount how you've seen God's faithfulness to us, to you, to other people in our church over the last four years. And we trust that He will continue to be faithful to us as well. In the late 1990s, Joanne and I helped to start what's called a seeker-sensitive church. It was called, what was it called? Quest Community Church. I went blank for just a moment. Quest Community Church. You may be familiar with the term seeker-sensitive church. A seeker-sensitive church is one that designs their services primarily to share the gospel with non-Christians who are likely not familiar with the Christian Bible or maybe some Christian terminology. Oftentimes, during our services at Quest Community Church, we would begin the service with an incredible performance of a popular song on the radio. Later in the service, we'd include a dramatic portrayal, including good actors, which drove home a theme in the service. And finally, there would be a sermon or a talk, which would play on that theme, speak to that theme as a starting point, and would eventually get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least the best ones would. Many people became Christians through Quest Community Church. It was amazing. But I don't think that a seeker-sensitive church is the right model of a church to follow now. I'm convinced now that it's a wrong way to form and lead a church. I don't think that church services should primarily be seeker-sensitive, but... But I do think that every Christian should be seeker-sensitive. What I mean by that is that all Christians should consider carefully how best to begin conversations and how best to get to and explain the gospel in terms and with words that non-Christians will understand no matter what their religious background is. That's what I think it means to be a seeker-sensitive Christian. Paul was a seeker-sensitive preacher, and we see it in our passage today. Paul began his second missionary journey in last week's passage that stretched from chapter 15, verse 36, to the end of chapter 16. And in that leg of the journey, it's Paul's second missionary journey, Paul assembled a ministry partnership that eventually included Silas from Jerusalem, Timothy from Galatia, and Luke, who was likely from the region of Macedonia. They traveled back through Cilicia and Galatia, which are in present-day Turkey, 
encouraging the young churches that were in cities like Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And then after being prevented from entering some of the regions near those cities, the Lord gave Paul a vision that led the whole group of them across the Aegean Sea and to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was there that at the end of Acts chapter 16, Luke featured in his account the salvation of three specific people. Lydia, the businesswoman, do you remember her? And a slave girl, and then a Roman jailer. They all became Christians along with their families. And Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and they were imprisoned. But when the authorities realized that they had unlawfully beaten these Roman citizens and imprisoned them, both Paul and Silas were released with an apology from the city officials. The Lord renewed their strength, and so they pressed on south in their journey, which is where we're picking up the story for this week's sermon. This is the second of really three sermons that will cover Paul's second missionary journey. And as in the past weeks, it'll be helpful for you maybe to look at the map. Look at the map on page 13 in your bulletin. If you look there, where we're starting in our passage this afternoon is up at the very top, kind of the upper left-hand corner. You can see Philippi there. That was the end of chapter 16. Well, our ministry partnership led by Paul is going to travel south through Amphipolis and Apollonia down to their first city they reach and do ministry in. That's Thessalonica. Then they move on to Berea. And then they put Paul on a ship and he heads out and goes on down to Athens. Those are the three cities that we're going to cover in the journey of Paul this afternoon. The sermon has two points this afternoon. It's proclaim Christ from Scripture. Proclaim Christ from Scripture. And the second point is very similar to it. Proclaim Christ with biblical truth. Proclaim Christ with Scripture and then with biblical truth. The first of those two points is proclaim Christ from Scripture. And we see it in verses 1 through 15. In those 15 verses, we see Paul and Silas visiting two different cities, Thessalonica and then Berea. Now, as with last week, I encouraged you to perhaps go home and during the week read Paul's letter to the Philippians, of course, because we read the account of when Paul first came into Philippi and preached the gospel there and people became Christians. It'll shed light on Paul's missionary journey. The same thing will be true this afternoon. If this coming week you would go home and read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, maybe his first letter. There's two letters to the Thessalonians, and you'll see things in that letter that remind you of what we'll read about happened in Thessalonica. It's incredible when you read through the book of Acts to go in and then read those letters in the New Testament that correspond with the cities that Paul and his ministry partners went to. Now, in both of these places, Thessalonica and Berea, it's likely that Paul preached in both the Jewish synagogue and the marketplace, 
But it's his ministry in the synagogue that Luke focuses on. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2 in chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And then later on, if you look farther down in verse 10, he moves on to Berea, and it says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? Back in chapter 9, the Lord told Paul, then named Saul, when he confronted him and converted him in Damascus, that his purpose in the Lord's work would be to share the gospel with Gentiles, non-Jews. But everywhere that Paul went, he started by sharing the gospel with the Jews first. Jews, of course, would be familiar with the Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what the Lord had given to His people, Israel, to prepare them to receive Jesus as the Savior of the world. Remember, at this time in Paul's life, the New Testament was either being written or hadn't yet been written, and the 27 books that make up the New Testament had not been collected into a single volume even yet. None of them really. Anything that existed at that point in time that eventually became a part of the New Testament was a separate document. So when Paul used the Scriptures in these synagogues to preach Christ, it means the Old Testament. Now, you and I need to know and understand the Old Testament as well. If you're a new Christian, if you've opened up the, new test, the Old Testament before, I'm sure you looked at it and you've decided, especially if you landed in a book like Numbers or Leviticus, wow, this is a difficult thing to read. The Old Testament can be intimidating, can't it? It's stories and it's poetry and it's laws that are all set in a different culture. But if you take the time and you begin reading it, exposing yourself to it little by little, you will gradually both understand it and begin to know God through it, more importantly. Those of you who are parents, be sure and begin to share the Old Testament with your children from a very early age. Be teaching them the Old Testament. Choose an easy-to-understand translation, perhaps, maybe the New International Version. We typically use the English Standard Version here in our sermons and in our teaching. But if you're teaching your very young children, perhaps you want to use a New International Version or perhaps even a New Living Translation. It's a simpler language to read to your children from the Old Testament. But deliberately and systematically give your children the gift of knowing the Old Testament from an early age. They will thank you in the future. And they just might meet Jesus there in the pages of the Old Testament for the first time. But Paul didn't just teach the Thessalonians and the Bereans Old Testament stories or poetry, did he? He didn't just read them the Old Testament. He preached Christ from the Old Testament. 
He got to Jesus. Look at how Luke describes it beginning at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3. It says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You see, the Jews believed that God would send a Messiah. That was not a foreign idea to them. They believed that God was going to send a Savior into the world to His people. Now, that was an evangelistic advantage that Paul had when he was preaching Christ to the Jews. But Paul would open up the Old Testament Scriptures and set out to prove that that Messiah, that Savior that the Old Testament talked about, whether it was in veiled language or very specific language, it was Jesus. His name was Jesus. The promises of future rescue and the predictions of a Savior were there in the Old Testament. The patterns of people becoming trapped in sin and then God revealing Himself and rescuing them They're all there in the Old Testament over and over and over again. All those patterns and promises and predictions were early versions and pointers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Himself said that the Old Testament was there to prepare the people to receive Him as the Savior of the world, the one who would take away the sins of all who repent and believe in Him. And so, in Luke 24, the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has died, He's been resurrected, and He's appearing to His disciples, and He says in verse 44, everything written about Me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus has just summed up what is the Old Testament. It's the law of Moses, it's the prophets, it's the Psalms. And even prior to that in the life and teachings of Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus had told the Jews who were angry with Him because He was making Himself equal with God because He called God His Father, He said this to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. He's saying, Don't just go to the Scriptures and think that eternal life is there. The Scriptures talk about me, and I have eternal life to give. When Paul preached the Old Testament Scriptures, he showed how they pointed to and revealed Jesus. You should expect the same thing every time you hear a sermon from the Old Testament. You should expect to hear about Jesus If Christ isn't preached in an Old Testament sermon, then it's not a Christian sermon. Christ might not be the only thing that's preached, of course, in a sermon that's based on an Old Testament text. There are certainly examples for us to follow and examples for us to avoid in the Old Testament. We should live like Abraham or Moses or Ruth and not like Pharaoh or Queen Jezebel or the Babylonians. But the Lord's most important purpose of the Old Testament is to reveal Jesus as Savior and Lord. You can learn how to see Christ in the Old Testament by listening carefully to how I or other preachers here in Covenant Hope Church preach Christ from the Old Testament. 
And just recently, Mark Donald has been preaching through the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. And in every one of those sermons, he has preached Christ to us at some point in the sermon. He's shown us how Daniel points to Jesus and the gospel. Learn from those sermons how to see Christ in the Old Testament. Listening to good sermons on the Old Testament will eventually teach you how to interpret the Old Testament correctly whenever you sit down to read it for yourself or when you read it with your friend or a colleague or your children. But in our passage, I wonder if you notice the different words that Luke uses to describe how Paul proclaimed Christ from the Scriptures. Did you see that? Look at verse 2. It says, he reasoned with them. And then in verse 3, it says that he was explaining and proving. And in verse 4, it says that some of them were persuaded. We need to go farther than just becoming familiar with the Scriptures. We too need to grow in being able to reason from the Scriptures. Can you explain the Scripture to someone? Can you go a step further even from that and even prove that the Scripture points to Jesus? Brothers and sisters, you can learn. I'm convinced that none of us will become equipped to use the Scripture well like Paul if we don't talk about Scripture with one another, if we don't aim to persuade others with our words. In fact, one current day author has defined evangelism as telling the gospel with the aim to persuade. But we need to be able to talk about Scripture. And that's one reason why it's so helpful to read the Bible with someone else and then talk about it together. I've found that reading the Bible with a non-Christian friend only increases my ability to explain the Scripture. Now, brothers and sisters, you should know this often happens through trial and error. I can't tell you how many times I've read the Scripture with someone who's not a Christian, and they ask me, what does that mean? And I say, I don't know. But I say, listen, I don't know, but let's keep reading, and I'm going to go find out what this means and come back to you and help you and I understand it. Trial and error is oftentimes the way that we learn how to explain the Scriptures. Don't be afraid to try and explain But as you try to help one another or a non-Christian friend under the Bible, you will grow in using the Scripture. And that's especially true for you parents as well. I have lots of application for you parents today, by the way. There's nothing that forces you to practice explaining God's Word better than teaching your children God's Word at all the different stages in their growth and in their different ages. Helping your child to understand God's Word will help equip you to explain the Scripture then to your colleague or your next-door neighbor or a distant family member who's not a Christian. If you can explain it to a five-year-old, you can explain it to your non-Christian friend. And oftentimes, you'll explain it in the very same way. Now, in all three cities in our passage today, we also see a variety of different responses to the proclamation of Christ as Savior and Lord. In both cities, there were people who believed, 
they repented, they trusted in Christ. And so in Thessalonica, it says some of them were persuaded, and it also says many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women came to Christ. But as in the past cities where Paul preached, some of the Jews in Thessalonica became jealous. And so they stirred up a violent mob which eventually attacked the home of a believer named Jason. That was likely where the apostles were staying and doing some of their discipleship out of the public eye. Those Jews and that mob that they riled up made serious accusations against Paul and his partners in ministry. And so they made this man, the mob, made this man pay money as some kind of guarantee that Paul and his partners would leave the city, which they did by night. Now, in Berea, there was a different kind of response to the gospel. It says the Berean Jews were described as being more noble, or we could say, you could say open-minded. They were open-minded. And in verse 11, it says what their open-mindedness resulted in or what it looked like. It says, Look there with me in verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It goes on to say, many of them therefore believed. So when Paul said, look at the Old Testament Scriptures with me, they did. They opened up their Bibles, so to speak. They examined them. They read them over and over. They considered Paul's arguments. And many of them believed as a result. We never know how people are going to respond when we preach the gospel to them. And we should expect a variety of different responses. We should expect some to welcome it with eagerness. Some will respond by attacking us, perhaps literally, perhaps in other ways, in your workplace, maybe even in your family. And others are going to simply walk away uninterested. You know, Jesus experienced the very same thing. Don't let negative responses to the gospel stop you from sharing it, brothers and sisters. Don't let a change in someone's response stop you either. Some show great interest at the very beginning when you begin sharing the good news with them. And then they eventually grow disinterested when they realize that perhaps following Christ is very costly or He won't guarantee them the things that they really want in life right now. That happens all the time. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower that Jesus told. There were four types of soil And only one type of soil was the good soil, people who received the gospel in faith. Keep praying for God to work in people's hearts. Keep praying. It's ultimately the Lord who changes people's hearts to draw them to Himself. But what about those of you who are here today and you're not a Christian? You're always welcome here with us here at Covenant Hope Church, of course. Please come to the picnic with us afterwards. If you don't have a ride, Bryce Zerbick down here at the front will help you find a ride or perhaps someone that you came with or that you've met prior to the service would be someone who could take you there. We want you to join us. But more than come to a picnic or be our friends, 
simply attend our services. We want you to examine the Scriptures and see what the Bible says about Jesus, to see if what we say about Him is true. We want you to be convinced in your own mind and your heart. We want you to know Him like we know Him. We want you to receive the forgiveness and the grace that He has extended to us. We want you to know the joy of serving Him because He's given us eternal life. Won't you look deeply into the Bible to see if the good news of Jesus is true? If it's true, it means everything. If you'd like to sit with someone and help you understand the Bible and who Jesus is and what He offers in the gospel, we would love to do that with you. Please come and talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Carson who was up here at the front earlier or perhaps someone who brought you as well. We would love nothing better than to explain who Jesus is. Paul and Silas couldn't stay long in Berea because those violent Jews of Thessalonica followed them all the way to Berea and began to stir up the crowds in that city as well. And so Silas and Timothy stayed behind in Berea a while, likely to continue in some quiet, behind-the-scenes discipleship of those new Christians, while Paul went on ahead further south to the great and important city of Athens. And that brings us to our second point this afternoon. Proclaim Christ with biblical truth. Proclaim Christ with biblical truth. First, we talked about proclaiming Christ from the Scripture, but this is using biblical truth. And we see that in verses 16 through 34. The first point in the sermon this afternoon was about directly using Scripture to proclaim Christ. Paul's ministry in Athens, on the other hand, teaches us to use biblical truth, truth that's found in the Bible, but it's also recognized by people who might not know the Scripture. Paul in Athens answers the question that we might ask like this, how do I preach Christ when people aren't familiar with Scripture? Let's look closer. Athens was an important Greek city. It was the leading Greek city, in fact. It was filled with beautiful buildings, most of which had something to do with the worship of pagan gods. And it prided itself on being an important center of intellectual and philosophical and religious discussion. They thought they were smart in Athens. Paul arrived there without Silas and Timothy, and the first thing that he noticed and his reaction to it are significant. Look at verse 16 with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The city was full of idols, it says. It literally says in the Greek, a forest of idols like a dense forest. Idols are false gods, anything that replaces the living God. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says this, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. 
He says if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God Himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. That's what an idol is. Idols can be represented by statues, of course, or by symbols, or they can simply be ideas, or even people, or other material things. Idols demand to be worshipped. Now, we were all created to be worshipers. We're all wired to worship. Every single human being is a worshiper designed by God. But we sin and we disobey God when we replace the worship of our Lord and Creator with the worship of anything else. All sin then is simply disordered worship, misdirected worship. If you catch yourself sinning, that's idolatry. Now, when you think about the city of Dubai, can you discern? Are you aware of? Can you see the idols that are common in this place? Of course, money, wealth, material possessions are big dominant idols in this city. Social status and physical beauty as well are worshipped here. Maybe we could say pleasure and entertainment are idols of the UAE. If you don't see these as idols, you are at great risk of being drawn into worshiping them. It's a risk because idols are constantly making promises to us. The living God makes promises that He keeps, and Satan's idols are false gods who try to make promises to us, but it comes at a very, very high cost. Idols promise some kind of freedom, but the cost of worshiping an idol, the cost of bowing down to an idol is slavery, ultimately. If you do recognize the idols of Dubai, what's your response to that? Paul's response was for his spirit to be provoked, it says. That means he was upset. He was unsettled by all of the idolatry that he saw. He was provoked because, why? He was jealous for the worship of the true God. For Jesus Christ, King and Savior and Lord, to be worshiped instead. Is your heart broken when you think about the idolatry of Dubai? When you think about the fact that all three million people that live in this city and work in this city and play in this city were designed to bow down and worship Jesus Christ? And that when they don't, Jesus is being denied glory and honor and praise that He deserves? That should break our hearts. All of the misdirected worship here in the city is worship that Jesus Christ deserves. 
If you're not provoked by the idolatry around us, pray for a heart that's jealous for all worship to go to its rightful recipient, Jesus Christ. Pray that we as a church would have hearts so inflamed with love and devotion to Jesus that we weep over the spiritual slavery that idolatry brings here in Dubai. Do you pray for Jesus to become the object of worship in Dubai all throughout the city? Is your heart provoked by the idolatry here that such that proclaiming Christ becomes your main goal for living in this place? Oh, brothers and sisters, it should. Of course, we can be drawn to those same idols as well, money, possessions, social status, physical beauty and sex. But what are some idols that might surprise us as Christians that we might be drawn to? What about our children? Children can become idols as well. Children are, of course, a gift from the Lord. All good things that God gives us in this life can become idols to us, just like children can. Children become an idol when we see them as primarily representing us as adults. Children become an idol when how they make us feel or how they cause other people to view us becomes most important to us. Will your child's academic performance or athletic skill become something that you must control in order to make yourself look better to others? Brothers and sisters, it's easy to slip into. Our children can become idols when the decisions that we make about our children become always more important than our own discipleship to Christ and service to others in the name of Christ. Now, we have lots of new parents in our church, and as you're finding out, parenting can feel all-consuming, especially for you moms. Your life gets turned upside down when you have a baby. But for both husbands and wives, your identity as a disciple of Jesus is most important. Even your role as a wife or a husband is most important, more important. And you can't let being a mother and a father displace nurturing your marriage. One of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is to nurture a strong marriage in your home. Certainly, it will look differently with kids than the shape it took before you had kids nurturing your marriage. But you need to pray and look for ways to not let your children become an idol in your life. Let me touch on one more possible idol for us, pleasing parents and family. Again, it's a good thing that we honor our mothers and fathers, right? The Scripture tells us to do that. Parents and family are a gift from God. But they can become idols in our lives when pleasing them becomes more important than pleasing Christ our Lord. Perhaps some of you university students are particularly feeling that now at this stage in your life. 
you're moving from adolescence into full adulthood. And perhaps your parents don't recognize any of the adulthood that you've grown into. They simply think of you as children. And they're asking you to obey them in all things, perhaps even things that go against what would be pleasing to Christ. What a difficult situation that is. What a dilemma you face. How to honor them but please Christ above all. Paul was provoked by the idolatry in Athens, but he didn't reject the city. In love, instead, he set out to proclaim Christ there. First, he went to the synagogue, but eventually he made it into the marketplace, and there he encountered people following two types of philosophy, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were committed to living a life of pleasure and peace. They sought to avoid passions and negative emotions. The Stoics believed that God was in everything. That's called pantheism. And they sought to become virtuous by living all according to reason and logic. Both of these philosophical types listened to Paul and they heard him preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And it was something that they'd never heard before. And so they wanted to hear more. And many of them looked down on Paul and called him a babbler here in this passage. Or in, in another translation, it uses the phrase, an ignorant show-off. <laughs> That's what they thought of him. Still, they invited him to speak in a place where speakers often spoke in sermons or talks called the Areopagus. And that was the name for the city council and the place where the council met up on a high hill that was overlooking the marketplace. So they led Paul up to the Areopagus and Luke records Paul's sermon there from verses 22 through 31. This is the third and last sermon that we read in Paul's missionary journeys. In it, we see a model of proclaiming Christ to people who don't know Scripture. Instead, Paul uses biblical truths that the Athenian philosophers would have recognized apart from reading it in the Jewish Scriptures. Now, he's still going to come to the point where he proclaims Jesus as Lord, but it's a different starting place and a different argument than the arguments that he would have made in the synagogues. In verse 22 through 23, he begins by pointing to the Athenians' religiousness. In other words, the fact that they were worshipers. They were proud of that. He calls them religious and he references an altar that he's seen in the city that had the inscription on it, to an unknown God. They recognize that there may be gods, of course, that they don't know about. And so Paul tells them that he's going to tell them about the true God that they don't know about. The God that perhaps this ignorant, unknowing Athenian built to an unknown God. Who is that God? Paul says, I'm going to tell you who he is. In verse 24 then, he argues that the true God made the world. He's the creator of everything and everyone. 
And verse 25, his next point is that this true God doesn't live in temples and doesn't need humans to serve Him. Instead, we need Him. He gives us life and breath. He's our sustainer. In verse 26, Paul reveals that this unknown God that he's proclaiming created everyone and even all nations. He's therefore the true ruler of all nations. In verse 27, he says that this unknown God, creator, sustainer, ruler, is ultimately knowable. He's not far, but he's near to everyone. Then in verses 28 and 29, he quotes a line from two different non-Christian writers that these philosophers would have known, and he draws a conclusion from what these philosophers have said. These authors were non-Christians, but what they wrote was true. The first quote, in Him we live and move and have our being. The second quote from a pagan philosopher, for we are indeed His offspring. Essentially, these quotes say that we humans are God's offspring. We're His children, and He's a Father to us. And that's true. All people were created by God, and He is our Father in that sense, that He's our source. He's our sustainer, even for people who ignore Him and don't worship Him. This God is knowable and a Father to us all then shouldn't be represented by silver or gold images, he says in verse 29. And now, Paul drives home the problem that the Athenians have that they were unaware of. If this God is creator and sustainer and ruler and Father, then He's also judge but can be rescuer. Look at verses 30 and 31. That's his conclusion. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul tells them that their dilemma and their hope is Christ. Christ will judge them ultimately, but Christ is risen and can save them. Now, you might look at the end of what Luke has recorded here for us of Paul's sermon at the Areopagus, and you might ask yourself, where's the mention of the cross? Where's the mention of Christ's righteous life? Where is the mention of His substitutionary death? I believe that we can assume with great confidence that Paul did share the righteous life of Christ, the horror and the beauty of the cross. And of course, we know that he shared the resurrection because it's right there in what Luke's recorded for us. Every time we have a record of Paul's sermons, we can be sure that we have a summary. I timed myself, and it took 90 seconds to read this Areopagus sermon at a slow pace. 90 seconds. Do you think Paul only spoke in the Areopagus for 90 seconds? No. Paul said far more. Luke has recorded this summary version of Paul's sermon to show us how wise and loving Paul was 
in how he approached the pagan philosophers of Athens. All of the truths that Paul used to work in his argument here in the sermon on his way to the message of Christ are biblical truths, but he didn't argue them directly from Scripture. And he he didn't do that at first. We, too, can learn from Paul. When you begin sharing the gospel with a friend or a colleague, consider what that person does know and what they don't know about the Bible and Christianity. If your friend is an irreligious person, someone who has no Christian background whatsoever, or your friend hasn't read the Bible for themselves, even if they call themselves a Christian, for example, it might not be helpful for you to begin by taking them to Isaiah 53, or to Psalm 110, or to Psalm 2, or to Daniel chapter 7. Look for truths that your friend might agree with even though their belief isn't rooted in Scripture. Maybe, for example, it's the problem of injustice and evil in the world. You can hardly meet a person that doesn't believe that there's evil in the world, even in the people that they know, even in themselves, if they'll admit it. We believe that the world is filled with injustice, and no laws or government will ever be able to correct it prior to Jesus returning. That's a good starting place to get to the topic of sin, universal sin. Maybe it's the idea of beauty or the power and brilliance of creation. That's where you want to start. We believe that creation says something about the Creator. Read Romans 1. Paul makes that very argument. The creation tells us that God is powerful and good and righteous. And everyone is without excuse because they see creation. We believe that a beautiful and powerful creation points to an even more beautiful and powerful Creator. That's a good starting place for your irreligious friend. But wherever you start, take them to Jesus. Take them eventually to Jesus. Tell them about the compassion of Jesus. Tell them about the stunning wisdom of Jesus, the incredible variety of miracles of Jesus. Tell them about the sacrificial cross of Jesus. Tell them about the victorious resurrection of Jesus. And by all means, suggest to them that there are two ways to live. As ruler of your own life, which will end in death and judgment, or with Jesus as Savior and ruler of your life, which will lead to eternal life with Him. Those are the two ways to live. Wherever you start in speaking about the gospel, tell the good news of what Jesus Christ offers. What Paul shared about Jesus is what we have written in the gospel accounts today, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. Even if someone is unfamiliar with the Bible then, 
A good starting place might be in some of these topics of general revelation that we see in creation, but eventually you can introduce them to Jesus by inviting them to read the Gospels. Ask them, have you ever had a chance to read the accounts of Jesus' life for yourself? Wait for an answer. If they say no or not much, invite them to read it with you and to make up their own mind about Jesus. In all my years of ministry and evangelism, having someone read the gospel with me has always borne gospel fruit. In the gospels, Jesus speaks for himself. Let your friend or your colleague meet Jesus and make a decision to follow him or to walk away. When Paul began telling the Athenians about the resurrection of Christ, many of these arrogant philosophers, they mocked him. And that too is a response that we can expect sometimes when we preach the gospel. But, but some believed. One man named Dionysius and a woman named Demarus are noted by Luke. What amazing examples we see in Paul as he goes from city to city preaching the gospel, always considering the starting point of his listeners, but never failing to get to Jesus Christ, the cross, and the resurrection. We've seen violent responses and mocking responses in these three cities. We should expect some of the same. But the Lord is at work when we proclaim Christ. He's the one who opens the hearts of those we share the gospel with. Whether we begin with the scripture or we begin with biblical truth in a popular song or a well-known poem, our task, our joy, our privilege is to proclaim Christ with God's truth to all people, no matter what kind of response we get. And we will trust God for the fruit. Maybe that's the sermon in a sentence. Proclaim Christ with God's truth to all people, expecting different responses. Let's go to this God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us these examples of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. We praise you for their faithfulness, for their zeal and their passion for you and, and for the gospel. We praise you for their love for people such that they would endure beatings and mocking. They would endure violence and disinterest, all to see your appointed people, the people that you've chosen from before the foundations of the earth were laid, turn to you in faith and become members of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.